So for those of you who are new or visiting, my name is Dave Bach, and <laughs> I have the privilege of serving this church as pastor, and I have been gone um, for a number of weeks throughout the summer on a little bit of a sabbatical for refreshment and rejuvenation, and uh, at, right at the get-go, I just need to say thank you for not changing the locks on me. <laughs> Or the alarm code, you know? And, and really, uh, thank you for your faithfulness throughout the summer. Thank you for, uh, to all of the leadership team, to the staff, for carrying on the worship of the church. You know, no ministry is wrapped around one person. We are all part of this together, and I am grateful for that. And it is wonderful to be back home. And so I bring you greetings. And... Uh, throughout the coming days, uh, I'm sure that I will be able to share with you a little bit about, about my time. At the outset, I will tell you that I, I did learn something about myself. So last week, kind of a last-minute thing, uh, I graduated from Olivet Nazarene University in Illinois, and they, uh, they were bringing in, uh, for a series of academic lectures, Probably my very favorite author and theologian. If you listen to me long enough, you'll know that the guy that I quote probably the most often is a guy named N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright. And so he was at Olivet for a series of lectures, and, and I decided to go right at the last minute because I found out one of my close friends from yesteryear was going to be there, and it was good to spend some time with him, and to, I actually got to meet my favorite author. That was like one of the celebrity moments um, in my life. That was kind of cool. But I, what I found out about myself is I'm really only a second-rate theologian, and here's why. We showed up a little bit late for the first lecture. We walked in. N.T. Wright is already... I don't know, he's far into his topic, and it's like a fire hose coming at us. And so we get that evening session done, we go back to the hotel, and there's a guy, I've never met this man before in my life, his name is Howard, and he noticed us uh, walk in late, and so he said, hey, did you catch that first part? I'm like, uh, no, we kind of walked in late. And uh, he's like, wow, it was just awesome. And he's like, I'm an Old Testament scholar, and he's more of a New Testament, and he's just going on and on and on. I don't know this man. But what he tells me, he says, you know, this was, that was really awesome. I think Tom has lost a little weight since the last time I saw him. So I'm only second rate because I didn't know I was supposed to be paying attention to the weight of my favorite theologians. So it was good to go to that. Um, a wonderful series of lectures, um, and some of which will probably be downloaded into some sermons in the upcoming days which I'm looking forward to. But as we kind of get back into the groove, we're picking up where we left off in the spring. We started uh, this year with a study in the book of Acts, and then we took a few Sundays, you know, Mother's Day and a couple after that, and we explored some other things, and our intention was to come back to the book of Acts in the fall. And so here we are, and if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you uh, to turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Now, if you remember a little bit about how the book of Acts is organized, uh, chapters 
13 and 14 tell us about what we call Paul's first missionary journey. So if you've ever, during a boring sermon, flipped to the back of your Bible and looked at the nice color pictures that have the maps on them and the little routes of where Paul went, one of them's labeled first missionary journey. Acts chapter 13 and 14 tell you all about it, tell you all about those churches. And I preached on Acts 13, and I thought it was really appropriate that Dr. Slamp last week used as his uh, launching point the first few verses of chapter 13. Totally unplanned. He didn't know that I was picking up in chapter 14. It's interesting how God works like that sometimes, isn't it? And so in chapter 13, Paul's first missionary journey starts with five guys in a room praying. And the Holy Spirit tells them, I want you to set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And Saul and Barnabas, uh, Saul, Paul, using the same name there, um, Saul and Barnabas are like two of their very top leaders in this growing and thriving church in Antioch. And so they're faced with, hey, the Holy Spirit wants us to take two of our best leaders and just send them off on this missionary adventure. But the Holy Spirit said it. We probably should do that. And they pray over these two, and they send them off, and, and off they go. They sail to the island of Cyprus, and they begin preaching there. They preach their way all the way across that island to Paphos, and then after that ministry is done there, they get back on the boat, and they go up to the mainland that we know as modern-day Turkey, and they start preaching their way through the countryside there. And if you remember, we've talked about this on numerous occasions. But wherever they went, they preached the gospel. And wherever the gospel started to take root in the lives of individual people, whenever the gospel took root and began to transform churches and communities, there was always opposition. And that's a fact. Whenever the gospel is preached effectively, whenever the gospel works its way into your life and you start living a radically different way, it's going to create opposition. And there's going to be some adversity and some conflict because of that very fact. Most of the time, when we face the adversity that comes at us because we're living a life that Jesus would want us to, usually the opposition comes uh, in things in flesh and blood, in people. They have something against us, and they, they want to hold it against us, and they want to beat us down. And, and so we see it as what's right in front of us, the flesh and blood battle. But I want to remind you of some verses that Paul had read, because it's easy for us to get distracted by flesh and blood battles that are right in front of us. And they take our focus off of preaching the gospel message. They take our focus off of working towards the holiness that Jesus calls us to. And Paul says, yes, there's a flesh and blood battle that's right there in front of you. But in, in Ephesians 6, he says, but our struggle is not against the flesh and blood. Do you hear that? but against the rulers, authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God and be ready. Okay? So that's a little background. Coming out of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are on their way. The gospel's being preached. There's some opposition, and we get to chapter 14. And as I like to do, I want to ask you to stand and join me. I'm going to read the first 20 verses of chapter 14. Luke writes, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews, who refused to believe, stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles, and there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, which Paul wouldn't understand, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought in bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, when they understood it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So I'm always wondering why the biblical authors 
you know, tell us what they tell us? You know, why does Luke, why does Luke choose to tell this story in this particular way? If you're note takers, uh, I may get back to all of these things, but I'm just going to tell you straight up, I think there's a few things. Uh, one, to encourage perseverance in the life of disciples. Um, two, to strengthen the church body. Because when Luke uh, wrote this, the church was heavily under fire, and he was telling these stories as a way to encourage that perseverance and, and, and strengthen the church. And he's trying to teach us what to do when you face adversity. I think Paul gives us a pretty good look at how we can stand, how we can live, how we can thrive in times of conflict and adversity. We look right at the beginning of our passage, and Paul and Barnabas arrived in Iconium, and as usual, Paul's first stop, if there's a Jewish synagogue in the city, he goes straight to church. He goes straight to the synagogue, and he begins preaching the gospel. And he goes into the synagogue, and what he's trying to do, he's trying to tell the Jews who have gathered there, he's trying to tell Jesus into the ongoing redemptive story of God in the world. See, what they know is how the, the people of Israel had you know, come out of slavery and, and gone through the wilderness, and God had given them the land. And they, even back before that, they remember the stories of how sin entered the world, and, and they had made their own choices, and, but God kept reaching out to redeem them. And he formed them into the people, and he gave them this land and, and gave them this whole sacrificial system. But he kept pointing he kept coming back and pointing to a day when there would be a Savior. And Paul went into the synagogues to tell the Jews, the Savior is here. He's arrived. It's Jesus. He was crucified, dead, buried, but he was resurrected to new life. And all of those things that God had been promising from way back when have come to fruition in the person and the work of Jesus. We're told that when he went into the synagogue in Iconium, that there was a great response to that. People received that message and became believers in Jesus. But all is not well. Did you notice that? All is not well. While a great number of people received the message and became believers... When that gospel message began to take root and to transform these people, it was opposed. It was opposed. See, the greater effectiveness of a ministry, the greater the resistance and the opposition. And Luke tells us right there in verse 2 of this whole story that there were some who refused to believe. Now, I'm a word nerd. And I wanted to look up and see, what does it mean to refuse to believe in this case? Because you would come to the, you know, okay, I get it, they, they were unbelieving. But the, the Greek word has a little more weight, a little more power, a little more oomph behind it. The Greek word says that, that not only were they unbelieving, but it suggests that they were disobedient. They were disobedient to this new message of grace that God was lavishing on people, that they just, no, we see what we're supposed to do, and we're going to disobey that and go the other direction, choose our own way. Uh, humans are pretty good at that, aren't we? See, this gospel 
you, would, you maybe would wonder, why would a message about grace uh, upset people? Why, why would people oppose a message about grace? Don't we like that? Don't we like to be extended grace and mercy? So why would people oppose that? Well, if you understand a little bit about their understanding of their faith, the religion at this point, they had the sacrificial system to take care of their sins. And if they followed that moral code perfectly, if they followed all the rules, if they, if they did everything just precisely correct, you could earn your forgiveness. You could earn that grace. And, and it's not just anybody who gets it. It's only the people who follow this prescribed way of doing it. And now Paul comes in and says, yeah, we're going to set that aside because now it's been taken care of for everybody. All you need to do to have grace and forgiveness in your life is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So people who had worked lifetimes to earn what they thought was their forgiveness and grace it's kind of like, well, we went through all that work. How is it that you just get it for free? And it was a threat to them because now it was open to anybody. Anybody. People who maybe they wouldn't want to extend grace to themselves. And that's a threat. And that is what People were rising up and saying, no, we got to stop this message. They were filled with jealousy and rage. We have to put an end to this kind of preaching. And so Luke tells us, I love the imagery that he gives us. He, said, he says um, that they stirred up the people. And so my picturesque mind, I, I imagine this group of people and they have this huge wooden spoon and they're just stirring the pot in the community and you know just speaking against these disciples and then it says and they poison their minds so not only do they have this big cauldron in the community that they're stirring but but a couple of them have this big pitcher of green thick oozing liquid and they're throwing this they're pouring this poisonous gases into this cauldron and they're stirring it up and it's Steaming and everybody's just getting all lathered and worked up over it. And it's working. It causes great division in their community. I love what John Stott, author, theologian, he says um, of this stirring the pot and poisoning of the minds in what John Stott calls an unscrupulous slander campaign. It was an outright assault to diminish not only the work and the preaching and the message of the gospel, but to discredit Paul and Barnabas personally. And so there you have it. Paul and Barnabas are now thrust right into the middle of a conflict, right into the middle of adversity. What seemed to be going so well in Iconium with people coming to know Jesus is now, in verse 4, we're told that there was a city that was totally divided. Some people believed Barnabas and Paul. Some people did not. Great 
chasm. There was a fracture in the community. So how do you deal with that kind of conflict? I'm sure you've never seen anything like that. How do you deal with times when people say things about you that just are not true? What, what do you do when people actively work to tear down what you've been working to build? What, if, what do you do when people assault your character? How do you face that kind of conflict and adversity? Well, Paul, if you, if you notice something about Paul, he's a pro at this. Because <laughs> there's, wherever Paul goes, there's two things that always happen. Wherever Paul goes, you can guarantee that one, the gospel will be preached, and two, a riot will ensue. That's Paul. Wherever he goes, the gospel gets preached, and there's a riot. He's, he's kind of used to um, facing this kind of adversity and conflict. Uh, N.T. Wright, in, in the seminar this last week, he said that, of, of Brother Paul, he said, Paul must have been a wonderfully annoying person to be around. <clears throat> Maybe let's um, talk about this, come in a side door. Uh, how many of you like the game hide-and-seek? Come on, be honest, raise your hand, hide-and-seek. Okay. I remember playing, this is a great, this is like maybe the best all-time kids game, right? Hide-and-seek. Well, when you add church building and lights out to the equation of hide-and-seek, it's all sorts of fun. When you add the, the layer of junior high all-night lock-in to the equation, it's just flat-out crazy. <laughs> I'm channeling my, uh, my uh, past in youth ministry and, and even going back a little further to my days in the youth ministry, but I've got to tell you, anybody who does a junior high lock-in, there's a special place in heaven for you, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> anyway, I remember the church building, you know, and our youth group is gathered, and we have this all-night lock-in, and everybody wants to find the best place. The lights go out, and, and you know, the best place place in the building where I grew up, there was a, it was kind of a, a windy uh, staircase, I don't even know how to describe it, Rabbit Warren, that, that uh, worked its way all the way up to the baptistry that was kind of like up here. And there were some pretty cool places to hide out where you, like, I don't want to tell you because then you'd find me. Um, it's in a different city, another thing, but uh, I can't give the secrets away, you know. But f hiding is fun, right? Let me ask you a question. So in the game of hide-and-seek, would you rather hide? Are you, do you prefer hiding or seeking? How many of you are, would prefer hiding? Yeah, Kalen told me yesterday, 10 out of 10, hiding, of course. How many, okay, how many of you would rather be the seeker? Yeah? See, a couple of you, there's, there's a few, there's a few. But hands down, it, you know, it was a, kind of a landslide victory there that we prefer hiding. And uh, I think that that is, I think that's scriptural too. We prefer hiding. I mean, if you go all the way back to page three of your Bible, you can 
read about the world's first game of hide-and-seek. Adam and Eve were in the garden, a beautiful place that God had, had created. And he had placed them in this garden, and he had given them dominion over that. And, and he said, you have the free reign of this place, but you can eat off of any tree, but don't just leave this one alone over here. Don't eat, don't eat off of that one. Well, the serpent, the devil, crafty, devious, deceitful, approaches them, asks them a question. Hey, did God really say you can't eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden? And Eve says, no, that's not what he said. What he said was, we can eat off of any tree except the one in the center of the garden. Because if we eat from the one in the center of garden, that we would surely die. And the serpent says, let me give you a secret. You won't die. God's holding out on you. If you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll become like God. You want to try it? Okay. So Eve takes a bite. Adam's standing right here, and she hands it to him. Hey, buddy, this is for dinner tonight. You want some? And he's like, yeah, I'll eat it. So they eat of the fruit. And almost instantaneously, they know that they have chosen a path that's different than the one that God had asked them to follow. Instantly, they feel this shame and guilt and emptiness and I'm imagining anxiety and worry, these things that are just emotions that are weighing them down because they've disobeyed what God told them and they've chosen their own path and that's the life of humans. We have the ability to choose what God wants for us and what he doesn't. And, and in this shame, you know, it's, um, you, can, you can kind of uh, take a little comical look at, at what happens here because instantly, I mean, they didn't, Clothes had not been invented yet. And so they're standing there naked, and Eve looks at Adam and says, you're naked. Here, put this fig leaf on. And Adam's over here like, you're naked. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, <clears throat> but they're riddled with shame and guilt, and they hear God coming. He's gently walking through the garden, pursuing them. And they go and they hide. They go and they hide. And God calls out to them three words. Where are you? It's not like God needs some locating device to figure out where they are. Pretty sure God's God, he probably knew which bush they were hiding behind. Where are 
you? Where is my image that I implanted in you? Where is that? I want to find the people who I made you to be, who you chose to go another path, and and there you are hiding. We're really good at hiding. When sin rocks our world, when conflict comes our way, the, you know, when, when anxiety sets in, when, when there's a fear of the future and of the unknown and, and worry and all of those things that we deal with, what do you do when you have a bad day? Do you go home and get out the Ben and Jerry's? Do you, do you leave the office and you go to the mall and you max out a credit card and just you know, shop therapy? Do you come home and take it out on your family? We all face times like this, and the truth is, whatever it looks like, we're really good at the hiding part, and God is always there calling out, reaching out, pursuing us in our brokenness. Where are you? Where are you? And so we're good at hiding, and when conflicts uh, set in, uh, we're really good at, at disappearing in the face of adversity. And conflict, I think that we would probably agree, uh, conflict happens when there are two differing views of reality. If you hold one view of reality and I hold another, there's a tension between that, right? And that tension you could label as the conflict between two pictures, two understandings of reality. And sociologists tell us that when we face conflict, when we face adversity like this, when, we, when we're just living in that tension, uh, sociologists will tell us that there's three instincts that humans have on how we, were, we would deal with such times. The first one, and you've, you've heard this before, the first one, the first instinct, that, um, uh, the first hiding instinct is fight. Fight. You know, we're going to rise up, we're going to posture up, we're going to puff ourselves up, and we're going to swing back. If somebody is after us, then, then you know what? You punch me, I'm going to punch you harder. We're going to fight, defend ourselves, and we're going to play the game to win the game. So the first instinct is fight. The second instinct is flight. I don't want to deal with this. I want to escape it. I'm going to turn around and run as fast as I can the other direction and see if I can outrun it and make it go away. And the third one is freeze. Like a raccoon in a dark night with headlights on it. (laughs) Freeze. You know, if I just hold still long enough and I don't do anything and I don't say anything and I don't make eye contact with anybody... It's going to go away. It's going to disappear. Fight, flight, freeze. Can I offer you a fourth one? That I think together we need to work on as our default, as our primary instinct when conflict and adversity come our way. So we don't have to, we don't have to fight. We don't have to flee. We don't have to freeze. How about we rely on our faith? Okay? Fight, 
flight, freeze, but let's go with faith. Let's not be hiders, let's be seekers. So all of us who prefer hiding, let's raise our hand and say we would like to learn how to be people who like to be seekers. And we seek for, we seek after God. And I would ask you this question. When you are faced with adversity and conflict, do you, do you view the person across from you as an enemy or as a friend? Do you view the person that you'd put in the adversary chair as somebody who you are competing against, who you have to win? Enemy? Adversary? Competitor? Or do you see them as a brother or sister in Christ? Maybe if they're not a believer, do you see them as one in whom God put his very image? It's real easy for us in the moment where it feels like it's going to be a battle to gear up and lean in to the fight instinct. Where we would do about anything to lash out. Oftentimes when we sit in that position and we think about it long enough, uh, and we kind of leave our faith out of the equation, what happens is we begin to reduce the person across from us to something that's less than human. And in times where that happens, I want to put out there that our instinct that we need to learn is to lean into our faith. And our faith in that moment as believers would tell us, would teach us to sit back and to rest and to listen to the Holy Spirit. And you need to do that work. You need to be able to rest in the Holy Spirit and let God remind you of the power of the cross. Let God remind you that Jesus came, and though he was dead, he was raised to new life. That in God there is reconciliation, and there is mercy that flows, and there is grace that flows. And if you're at the point where you can only see the person across from you as enemy and adversary, it's time to kick in your faith and let the Holy Spirit begin, begin to let that grace wash over your own mind, your own soul, so that you can begin to see the person on the other side of this issue as one who God put his image in, who one who God dearly loves. And until you can get that image of that person emblazoned in your mind, it's best not to engage in conflict. When you get to that point, you're in a position where God's grace can flow through you. You become a conduit into the life of somebody else 
who you're embroiled and probably angry and upset with. But when you lean into your faith and you let God to do that work in your own soul first, then you can be a river of that to other people. And instead of swinging back, instead of running away, instead of freezing, you can love sacrificially and you can move in closer. You know, if you've ever been, and I speak with no personal um, uh, experience in this at all, if you're in a fist fight, if you move in closer to people, the swings don't hurt as bad. It's harder for somebody to get a full punch in if you're standing this close. It's when you, when you square off like this and a punch goes that the, they're able to get the full force in. And so when you lean into your faith and let, that, and let God do that work in your own soul and you can love that person even if you're disagreeing with them and you can move in to be a conduit of mercy and grace, it kind of starts to diffuse. And if nothing else, if the conflict just remains, you've still lived an example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And at the very least, you've put out there the model for what true Christian discipleship looks like. And maybe, just maybe, that would open a door of faith to somebody in your circle. That's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to face off with adversity and conflict. Paul perseveres through all of this, right? He was not deterred. We're told that when the city was divided, that he stayed there for a long time, probably preaching boldly, probably teaching these people maybe something like what we just talked about. We're told that the gospel continued to take root there, that there was fruit, that there were signs and wonders that confirmed what was being preached. We're told that faithful proclamation of the word will have results. There will be fruit. So I think there's a message to persevere. But know this, even, even when you act in good faith, and even when you try and do everything just right, everything how you understand your faith would, would lead you, there's still going to be people who get that huge wooden spoon out and they're going to stir the pot. It's a reality. We have most of our New Testament because there were conflict in churches. There will be people that get that spoon out. Others will pour in that green oozing liquid. But in the end, God will prove to be faithful through all of that. He will see you through to the other side. And all he asks us to do is to stand and to preach his word 
and to live faithfully as followers of Jesus. I'm going to talk about the, I'll probably talk about the, the little episode in the middle here next week because it's, kind of, it's kind of fun when Paul shows up in, in Lystra. It seems more appropriate maybe to close right now with a time of prayer. Um, they do go to Lystra, and in the end, the people who were stirring the pot in Antioch and, and those who were stirring the pot in Iconium, they are so worked up, so incensed with Paul that they follow him. They find him out in Lystra, moments into his work there, and they, they incite the people of Lystra to violence. And together, the people who were upset with him in Iconium, where we just talked about, and in this new place in Lystra, together they come together, and they are all persuaded that the best thing to do is to pick up the stones and chuck them at Paul. And they haul him out of the city, and they leave him there for dead. And I, a friend reminded me this week of, uh, of a quote by uh, Scotsman Sir Andrew Barton. He says, and I, I want to reinterpret this in light of what I think the Apostle Paul would say. That the, the real quote is, Fight on, my men. I am hurt, but am not slain. I'll lay me down and bleed a while, and then I'll rise and fight again. I think Brother Paul would have a version of that, and he would say this. Carry on, church. Go about your work. I am struck down but not destroyed. I'll lay here in chains for a while and bleed, and then I'll rise and I'll preach again. And the point of every, the direction of every message that Paul ever preached, the goal and destination was the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that will never change. The people of God said, amen.